He was a warrior and mystic, ogre and saint. The fox and the innocent, chivalrous, ruthless, less than a god, more than a man was. There is no measuring Muhadib's motives by ordinary standards. In the moment of his triumph, he saw that death prepared for him, yet he accepted the treachery. Can you say he did this out of a sense of justice? Whose justice, then? Remember, we speak of the Muhadib who ordered battle drums made from his enemy's skins. The Muhadib who denied the conventions of his ducal past with a wave of a hand, saying merely, I am the Kwisatz Haderach. That is reason enough. From Arrakis Awakening by the Princess Irulan. Welcome to Reading Dune, a podcast where we read Dune by Frank Herbert and talk about it. If you're a Fremen or a first time reader, and this is the first time that you're listening or reading the finale, this podcast is for you. My name is Caleb Pauls. And I'm Evan Diaz. And together we are going to read some Dune. Yeah, we are. Oh my gosh, Evan. You just finished reading. Oh my gosh. The final chapter of Dune. It's taken us 48 some weeks <laughs> to get there. How do you feel? Uh, I feel so many things <laughs> right now. It's like actually bonkers. I, I, and I, I haven't had time to process this. This episode is my time to process what just happened. <laughs> like so much just went down in that one in this one last chapter um i can't even talk okay well hopefully that your tongue will loosen as we go through this yeah um yeah in uh the last i don't even know how long we've been doing this we asked for your favorite moments right we're building a tribe little community a little people who read dune together and uh we ask you to email us your favorite moments at readingdune at gmail.com. And this week we have one of our OGs, Anna, emailed us her favorite moment. I'm going to read this email. She says, hello, gentlemen. It felt appropriate to write as we finish our journey through Dune together. I believe I'm one of the earliest followers of this experience. I've loved watching Evan learn and Caleb share the glory of the intricate world that Frank created. A world that's impact has forever chained the face of science fiction and storytelling as a whole. The community discussions, the what's your favorite part, the laughs, the visions of the chunk cloth throwing shout out mapes, and the excitement revelations learned as through reading has become a weekly ritual for not only myself, but my husband as well, as we listen, learn, and discuss with this fantastic community. As an avid fan of the Herbert universe, this has been such a joy. Anna, thank you. That's a deep compliment. Aww. Please know that, the that during a time where individuals were feel feeling isolated and lonely, we were able to share with you, even if it was not in body, but in spirit. I don't think you realize the impact you've had on many of us. As friendships have started, we believe we will continue with we only hope will be doing Messiah. As for my favorite scene, my favorite will forever be the Baron meeting the Atreides Gom Jabbar. Bum, bum, bum. My favorite quote, though, is the last line in the book. Oh, man. I won't say it right now until we finish all together tonight as a group. But we're reminded what a badass woman Jessica is and how much she understood love and politics. 
So yeah, as we end this tonight, all I can say is thank you for sharing with us and creating a space where we could all be with you. Here's to more books, more discussions, and more opportunities to review the impact of Herbert's work. Here's to both of you. You did it, fellas. You did it. Your B'nai Jesuit friend, Anna. Oh, Anna. What a lady. Oh my gosh. It's, uh, uh, it is, it's crazy that we were actually here. The finale. Yeah. Now, I want to just say a note real fast. Um, I heard, heard this in an interview that Frank wrote or said, it was in one of his Frank's interviews, and how about the pace of this book, right? Dune starts slow, like yeah. really slow. Like my, <laughs> yes. like my friends are like, really? Like, this is the book you want me to read? And I was like, yes. And they're like, I was like, that's why we needed to start this podcast to get people through the first six chapters and yeah, get them we needed, hooked. We needed to start this podcast so that Caleb would have a friend that would actually get past the slow part because of obligation. <laughs> and he yes. succeeded. He conned Ooh. me into reading it, but I'm not mad about it. It's a good con. Frank says that the book builds tension and more tension and more tension and more tension as it grows. And as the book is coming to a close, he wants the reader to feel as if, they, as if they're rolling down a hill and can't stop. But the end, the last chapter, Frank wanted it to feel high-key science fiction campy. Note this was before the golden age of science fiction, being that this is like the Lord of the Rings of science fiction. Right. He wanted the ending to be almost comedic. And it is with the Emperor, and we're about to see that. <laughs> just to show how ridiculous all of this politicsing really is. So Frank, I'll try to do my best. So first of all, Evan, this quote, he's a warrior yes. and mystic, ogre and saint. I mean, that is all very true. Um, and he talks about it in the chapter, but he has to, he has to be several things at once. He has to be, um, cruel and kind and understand the depths of both of those things to be able to do what he has to do. And um, it just, it's so much more complicated than good versus evil at this point for somebody with the power that he has. Right. And we, we you know, people were dropping hints here and there about, you know, like, Oh, Paul actually ends up being super evil or like, and I'm, if you guys have listened to the podcast this whole time, I've been like team Paul, team Atreides this whole time. And I'm not sure that that has changed. You know what I mean? Because he's, he's expressing this, like the intricacy of having a power, like the power that he has. And it's so much more complicated than like, he's a good guy. He's a bad guy. He's like something else, which is, which is cool. It's like, I don't know. I, don't know. It, I, I, I like it a lot. I love that. Yeah. He accepted the treachery knowing it was going to happen. Right. We see that several times in this chapter. He just willingly walks into the trap just like his father did, just like his grandfather did. I'm going to walk into the trap and see what happens. Um, there's this rumor that says that Muhadib um, orders battle drums made from the skins of his enemies. Like, this is what um, Gurney says earlier on. Like, this is that Muhadib. And now it's again this, this 
religious fanatic adventurer without mercy. And now I call this, I don't know if that actually happened. If the, if the rumor carried on, maybe as the jihad went forward, that was like their thing. The Sardaukar have bloody flags and the Fremen have battle drums made from skins of different people on different planets. I don't know, but I love how this just continues. And now we, well, now we know who also, uh, we meet Princess Irulan for the first time. She gets a line. Yeah, the first time, like, where she's actually involved. Right? Yeah, as merely a token of transaction. Yeah, which is surprising after all of her quotes. Yes. All right. All right, you ready to jump in? Let's do it. Let's jump into the finale. All right, so last time on Reading Dune. Once there was a boy named Paul who lived on a planet called Caladan. His mom and dad loved each other very much, but they had to move away from their nice house because of dad's work. And that's when everything fell apart. Okay, okay, okay. No, but for real. Paul was the child of a disobedient lady, Jessica, who was supposed to produce females, but because the Bene Gesserit were mixing and matching bloodlines over a thousand years to create the ultimate superhuman, whom they could control, bringing peace to the universe and for the good of all mankind, the Kizwatch Hatterack. But Jessica disobeyed because of undying love to the person she met on the first night they met. <laughs> they had sex, made a baby, and she gave birth to Paul. Paul was trained to be the finest mentat, swordsman, strategist, and his own mother in the Bene Gesserit ways before the Spice Melange found only on Arrakis. With the Harkonnens and the help of the Emperor of the known universe himself, created a trap for Paul's dad, the Duke Leto, who he could not avoid. And this sent the universe down a dangerous trajectory. Paul and Jessica took refuge with the people of Arrakis, who were all but ignored by the rest of the Imperium. There, Paul and Jessica used their special training to gain a foothold with the Fremen, buying into the myth and legends planted long ago by the Bene Gesserit. Now, Paul Muhadib has become something less than a god, but more than a man. Someone who can see possible futures as well as remember all the lives of those who come before him. He is at the fulcrum of time at which the known universe hangs in the balance. Muhadib's name is known across the Imperium, and now he holds the known universe hostage because he can destroy the one thing that ties everybody together, the spice. The final battle of Arakeen has taken place. Paul used family atomics, blew up the shield wall, letting the storm, the worms, and the, all of the Fremen, they let them have their vengeance upon the emperor's forces. And now Paul sits in his former home of Arakeen, waiting for the emperor to come to him to settle a debt. And the emperor, only has one play left. Treachery. Bum, bum, bum. Wow. Dude, that was a really good recap. That was impressive. Thanks. I did that from memory. No, you didn't. Shut up. No, you're right. I wrote it down, but I remember okay. everything that happened in Dune. <laughs> All right. So, Arrakis is now officially awakened. The planet will not be used by anybody anymore. Paul has now walked through the main entrance of the pillaged Arakeen governor's mansion. His former home, where they went, the first place he saw on Arrakis, he's now there. It's the great hall where Jessica was debating, where do I put the bull's head? Where do I put the painting? What do I do? This is all very awkward, right? That yep. spot is where such all of this happens. Such a good callback, too. Like, such a good callback to that first the first, uh, I don't know, third chapter or something, like way back in the beginning. Right. As soon as we show up, this is the spot. 
So he's walking through the main doors. And so basically, right, um, this isn't said in the book, but he went, the, the townspeople of Arakeen were used as shock forces. So basically the wall blew up, everyone starts fighting, the worms come in, the sand comes in, everything going crazy. And that's the like key, the, the moment. And so all of the city people in Arakeen just to start killing everybody they can find. And they just start pillaging everything. So now probably, what, four or six hours later, the dust, the dust has settled, literally and figuratively. Uh-huh. And Paul is now walking up into his old palace with Gurney, his companion from Kaladin, and Stilgar, his companion from Arrakis, on either side. Right, it's like a, like a Fast and Furious type entrance. Yes, exactly. But the place is a mess because Raban was in charge. But even now it's a disaster because uh, everybody pillaged everything. Gurney looked around the room disgusted as it started to bring up bad memories of the last time they were all there. I remember the day we first came here with your father. I don't like it then and I like it less now. One of our caves would be safer. Stilgar decided eyes him. Spoken like a true Fremen. (laughs) Stilgar tries to get Paul to consider maybe they should go to the cave. Right? But Paul says no. He needs the symbolism of this place. Everyone in the Imperium recognizes this place as a seat of power on the planet. What must be done must be done here. Paul commands Stilgar to have his men search the area to make sure there are no more Harkonnen tricks laying about. No more tricksies from the Harkonnens. Just as how it did when they first arrived on Dune. But I think, you know, still going the Fremen will be a little bit more thorough. Communications equipment's brought up and set near the fireplace. That fireplace by the dinner scene where Jessica wore that flaming red dress to make the Duke Leto really mad and sexually frustrated all at the same time. <laughs> and the Fremen guards who are now supplementing the Fadaiken took up their station. So lots of Fadaiken have died and now people are getting promoted. They're moving up the ranks, getting closer and closer to Muhadib. This palace was a place for the enemy for countless generations and nobody felt safe here. Fair. Paul turns to Gurney and asks him to bring in his mother and Chani. He also asks if Chani knows what happened to little Leto yet. Gurney tells him that a message was sent. So now Paul is just going off. All right. Where are my women? I'd like I'd like my mom and my lady, please. I'd like I need their wisdom. Also, um, are, are the worms still in, in the basin? And how bad was the damage from the storm? Gurney responds saying the worms have been taken out. Can you imagine like the thumper being put and then like some like Fremen like getting up and then like, all right, I gotta, I gotta wrangle you out of here the same way I got you in. There's like a line <laughs> of worms going out. No big deal. No big deal. And there was heavy damage in the direct path of the storm. And most of the damage was to the spice storage yard. So where they keep all the spice to send up to the space. And there is much damage from the battle as there is from the storm. So they lost a lot of money here. But Paul shrugs it off. Nothing money won't repair. Gurney checks Paul, reminding him of his Atreides-ness. Except for the lives, my lord. As if we're saying when, as if he were saying, when did an Atreides worry about things when people were at stake? 
human lives were always the most important things to Atreides. And here, Paul is just, eh, money will take care of this problem. But Paul is unmoved. He could only focus his attention on the inner eye. This was the end, or maybe the end of the beginning. There were too many gaps visible to him that still lay directly across his path. Through each gap, through each gap, he could see the jihad raging away down the corridors of the future, the history becoming now. Paul sighed, <sighs> crossed over to a chair by the wall. This chair used to be in the dining hall, and it's possible this chair held his own father once. Paul sat down, loosening the still suit at his neck. Gurney gets a report that they've located the emperor. And uh, he's holed up in what's left of his ship. And they've not found any Harkonnens yet. But they're still examining the dead. So Evan, uh, what, what does that mean by examining the dead? How do, how do Fremen examine the dead? Uh, they take their juice. <laughs> they just drain them and shrivel them up dry. <laughs> yep, gotta get that water. Paul asks if there's been any reply from the ships orbiting the planet. Nothing. Nobody is saying anything yet. Like, this is awkward and uncomfortable. We're going to see how this plays out. (laughs) Paul sighs again, leaning back into the chair. He asks for, ah, give me a captive Sardaukar to send to the Emperor with a message. It's time to end this. Meaning, you know, like, there's probably a bunch of Sardaukar they had lined up. Just give me one of them. I just need to send a message. Gurney turns quickly, flashing some hand signals to the Fadaikin who comes up next to Paul. But before Gurney leaves, Paul asks him a question. Gurney, since we have been rejoined, I've yet to hear you produce the proper quotation for the event. Oh, man. Gurney just swallowed, holding his jaw tight. As you wish, my lord. And the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people, for the people heard say that that day how the king was grieved for his son. Ouch. Wow, Gurney. Way to bring down the mood. Gosh, so, you know, like, he obviously is like, well, there is a very perfect thing, and I don't want to say it, but here it is, because you asked for it. And it's just like, stab. And I'm pretty sure, like, Paul is used to, like, being with Gurney, and Gurney's always just throwing around these quotations, but now in this serious moment, Gurney said nothing, and Paul's like, wait, 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 you usually say these cool things, what would you say now? And he says that. Gosh. So, that quote, and the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people, for the people heard say that the day how the king was grieved for his son is actually a quote from 2 Samuel's 19.2. Mm. In, in the King James Version, it's a direct quote, and it's... um. After it's King David talking about after the death death of Absalom, his son. For those of you unfamiliar with this story, Absalom tried to take away the uh, basically all of Israel from his father, the king. The king had to run away, didn't want to kill his son. And evidently the son running after in battle, he was riding on a mule and his head got stuck in a tree and people then took spears and gutted him. And that's how the story ends. But so David, the rightful king, is then restored, but he's still mourning the death of his son. There's this weird like things just aren't right about this situation. Right. Feeling. So, yeah. All right. So Paul 
closes his eyes, remembering the death of his own little Leto, forcing the grief out of his mind. The grief was overwhelming. Now they're in this place, it's I remember the loss of his father, the loss of his son, the loss of his own boyhood. Could you imagine trying to like grow up and be like an adolescent in general? And all of a sudden you realize you could see time and space. <laughs> and he's not that old in this moment, right? No, he's like 18. At this point, he's went through this like still as an adolescent, like uh, the his brain isn't fully functioned the way we know human brains are now. Right. So he's it's still being molded. But he knew that now was not the time to grief. He gave his thoughts over to the day's discoveries and how he had found something. And all of a sudden, in his prescience was the presence of his little sister, hidden somewhere in his awareness. He had never encountered something like this before. How was, how was Aaliyah doing this? She left him a message. I have breathed the future to place my words where only you can hear them. Even you cannot do that, my brother. I find it an interesting play. Oh, 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 yes. I killed our grandfather, the demented old baron. Don't worry, he had very little pain. Why is she a, why is she a small Russian child? Don't worry, brother. I have a little, he has the little pain. For the she sounds like... like Sounds like a baby Borat. <laughs> Somehow, like the magician from the Princess Bride, the Billy Crystal version, that like that started coming out at the end, and I didn't know how to stop it, so I just kept going. All right, so yeah, Alia says, "Baron, don't worry, I killed our grandfather," and then she just like faded away. Her presence is was gone, and Paul's like, "What the hell was that?" And then Muhadib, Paul opened his eyes to see Stilgar, his black bearded face just standing over him. Paul looked up at him and said, you found the body of the old Baron. Stilgar, Stilgar took a step back. <gasps> a hush overtook him. He whispered, how could you know that? We just found the body in a great big pile of metal that the emperor built. <laughs> and Paul says, how could you do that? <laughs> On the quiz at Tatarag, don't you know? <laughs> Get out of here. Paul ignores the question completely. And Gurney comes up with the captive Sardaukar. This man was the type of man who was used to rank and cast, probably like walked with a little swagger, probably blonde, perfectly chiseled, blue eye, just perfect. And Paul then just says to him, I am the Duke Paul Atreides. Do you understand? The Stardacar just stared at him, unmoving. Paul barked at him. Speak up, or your emperor may die. The man blinked, swallowed, <clears throat> repeating back to Paul what he just said. Paul noted there was something weird about this man. He seemed way too submissive to Paul. But mm. then again, the Sardaukar were not, they were not prepared to lose. They'd never lost. This was their first time they'd lost ever. Paul realized how always winning could be a weakness hmm. and how he should implement this in his own training program so people would know what to do with failure. Right. He just bookmarked. He, he highlighted it in his mental Kindle. Right. Like, hmm, oh, yes. And I think it's a, it's a good thing. Like, if you always win, I, I don't, uh, there's a quote somewhere that says you don't, you don't learn from success. You learn from failure. 
if you like the starter card weren't they weren't learning anymore they were only just doing what they were trained to do and now right. when it happened they didn't know what to do so paul says to the captive man i have a message for you he said the next thing in the, in the rhythm of the ancient ways so it's easier to remember i a duke of a great house an imperial kinsman give my word of bond under the convention, if the emperor and his people lay down their arms and come to me here, I will, I will guard their lives with my own. Paul held up his left hand, showing his ducal ring. I swear by this. The Sardaukar, who, again, not used to Arrakis, is like, wow, it's really dry here. Licks his lips. <laughs> wow, it's really dry here. Looks at Gurney. Yes, Paul said. Who else would command the allegiance of Gurney Halleck but Atreides? The man says, all right, I'll, ca I'll carry the message. So Gurney took the man away to go to his emperor. Paul turned back to Stolgar, who is still in some shock from seeing Paul tell the future yet again. Right. Stolgar says how Jessica and Cheney are now here in Arakeen, but the Reverend Mother Jessica sought a moment in the weirding room. Evan, why do you think Jessica would go to the weirding room? Um, because she misses her plant babies. 100%. She just wants to be around those plants. She wants, yeah, she wants to bring herself back to that moment of like that special moment she had in the weirding room day one. Mm-hmm. Place of solace, right? The note is like this, this, the thing was made for the ladies of the house. So this is mm -hmm. like her space. So she goes there and just... Probably just breathes in the oxygen from the plants. Just and we just soak up this in real fast. Paul says she goes there because she is sick with a longing for a planet she will never see. A planet where water falls from the sky. In that moment, Paul knew he had said too much. As Stilgar's eyes grew wide, and he whispered to himself, "Water from the sky." Paul watched as Stilgar transformed in front of him. From a Fremen leader, a Naib, to a creature of the of the Vazan El Gaib, a receptacle for awe and obedience. Looking at Stilgar, Paul could see the ghost wind of the jihad in it, and Paul thought in this moment he had witnessed a friend become a worshiper. Right, because he basically just described what the Fremen would see as heaven. Yes. Paradise. Right? Uh-huh. Like in Western culture it's roads of gold you know roads mm -hmm. paved with gold and to them it's water falling from the sky because water water is their gold it's everything it's the only yeah. thing that matters on arrakis yeah paul felt a rush of loneliness envelop him he glanced around to see the fremen guards in the room he saw how on point they were and how there was a subtle prideful competition among them all with the hope of being noticed by Muhadib. And Paul thinks a dark thought. Muhadib, from whom all blessings flow. It was the most bitterest thought of his life. So my question is, Evan, is Muhadib still human? Is Paul still human? I think Paul's still human. Muhadib is like the legend that he's become. So, like, no? 
Because in chapter one, Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mahayam makes him put a hand in the box to test if he's human, right? The test is if you could withstand the pain to make sure your offspring could survive, you were then human. Do you think Muhadib is still human? I don't know if he's human, but he is definitely legend. So he's, who can say? Yeah, he's definitely the other. All could sense the jihad. He thought to himself how he he must take the throne. And literally everybody knows it. But he does this for one reason. To prevent the jihad from ever happening. As Paul is dazing off, sitting in his chair, Stilgar has more, more news. <clears throat> he clears his throat. And he says, uh, Raban is dead too. Paul nods. Evan, how do you think Raban died? We don't know. This is all we get. So this is pure speculation. How do you think the beast Raban went down? I mean, I assume in battle, but I didn't even think about that until you asked. And it's like, he could have just been sitting there watching it all come at him and just like killed himself or you know, like, I guess anything could have happened. Yeah, I, there's so many things that could have happened. So the the uh, miniseries that Sci-Fi did has this, I guess it's not spoilers, Raban dies. But they have the shock forces of the the citizens who he oppressed. They all corner him and kill him. Oh, there's an, wow. There's another theory that he was on the wall when they got blown up. Man, that's good. Uh, well, I uh, guess this is the last episode, so there's no such thing as spoilers anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. Or, or my personal favorite is he's the first to get eaten by a sandworm. Just right there. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. But... Raban is dead, so they have to find his remains. So it's probably not the worm or the atomics, but, you know, still. The guards suddenly stiffen to attention and make way for the Reverend Mother, Jessica, as she approached her son. So she's coming from the weirding room down the hall to the Great Hall. She wore her all-black abba, and there was a slight sand walk to her, slightly walking off rhythm as she approached, right? They're, they're not used to walking on solid ground that does not attract worms. Right. So there, there's like this little like, like, like sway to her as, she, as she's walking. But Paul noted how even being in this place had restored something of what she had formerly been, the lady to a great house, the concubine to a ruling, a ruling duke. Her presence carried some of its old matriarchal assertiveness. She's now the deadly combo of Remen, Reverend Mother, and Lady to an Imperial Duke. Jessica notes the fatigue in Paul and how he hides it by sitting in his chair. She searched her emotions and she, she found that she had no compassion for her son. It was as if she was rendered incapable of any emotion for her son. Like they just kind of reconciled, but then there was this moment and then we got freaked out. And now there's like this disconnect completely. Like her son is that other and she... She can't connect to it, which I can, I'm not a mother, but I could imagine it'd be really hard as a mom to not see your son and feel anything. Right. I mean, maybe it's just like the pressure of the moment. She has to 
keep her mind focused like on the task at hand. And so her training and all of her brain magic is just like suppressing the motherly instinct because obviously it's about to go down right now, you know? Yes. Yes. Um, and plus, she was she's wandering these great halls, but this place refuses to fit inside her memories. She's been yeah. here. She's had experience, but it's just blank. Nothing. This place remained completely foreign. Like, she'd never walk these halls with her beloved Leto, or place room assignments with Howitt, or encountered a drunken Duncan in the halls. Drunken Duncan. There was... None of that. She thought to herself how this is less like the Adob memory, but in reverse. Whereas the Adob memory demands itself to be said in the moment, now memories refuse to be known as if they denied themselves completely. Jessica then asked Paul the most big brother question ever. After the biggest battle of both of their lives, where his little sister was taken captive by the enemy and then brought here and then all chaos broke out, Jessica asked Paul, where, where is Aaliyah? <laughs> Paul responds coldly, without emotion. She is out doing what any good Fremen child should be doing in such times. She's killing enemy wounded and marking their bodies for water recovery teams. Paul! <laughs> Jessica just shouts at him. What? <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we should, we, should just, we should just start a drinking game now. Every time that Jessica reprimands... Paul by saying, Paul, everybody drinks. So just here we go. Paul says, you must understand what she does. She does this out of kindness. Isn't it odd how we misunderstand the hidden unity of kindness and cruelty? So Evan, how, how is this killing the enemy wounded kindness and cruelty? Well, it's cruelty in the sense that you're killing somebody. Um, but also like, this is Arrakis, and this is a Fremen attack. There's no, there's not like a hospital, right? They're not gonna like help nurse the wounded and like help them feel better. So it's either they sit there and die slowly and waste all that water, or the kids just <laughs> take them out and preserve their water and. So there's there's a little bit of both in there. De yes, and I mean, would any good Fremen child what that their job on the battlefield is collect the water, even right. if it's from even if it's from bodies. That's what it's just a weird image to think of a little four year old with a knife just marking people and then slicing their throats and or just ah that one's there take it this one get that one, and we don't we don't see the little sister at all. We just imagine she's just doing this the whole time, just having a grand old time. <laughs> Jessica could only glare at Paul, shocked by this profound change. What could have changed him? He's cold and isolated and just not quite there. Was it the death of his own son that caused this change? What do you think the change was? I mean, he's just like actually finally becoming the Kwisatz Haderach. Do you think he was always headed towards this, thisness? It would appear so because it's literally like as far as he could see, basically with his super future vision, this is the culmination of everything. So, yeah. 
And I, yeah, I do think there was a change a little bit with the death of his son. The, like that's where like the switch, like, oh, I'm going to show the universe want to be cruel. I'm going to show the universe what cruelty is. Like I'm yeah. just going after it now. Jessica continues to say how the men tell strange stories about Paul. The men say Paul, the men say Muhadib as powers of the legend, how nothing can be hidden from Muhadib. Paul only quips back at his mother. A Bene Gesserit should ask about legends. Jessica admitted that yes, she had a hand in creating whatever Paul was. And then Paul just goes off on her. How would you like to live billions upon billions of lives? There's a fabric of legends for you. Think of all those experiences, the wisdom they'd bring. But wisdom tempers love, doesn't it? And it puts a new shape of, on hate. How can you tell what is ruthless unless you've plumbed the depths of both cruelty and kindness? You should fear me, mother. I am the Kwisatch Haderach. Yeah! So, I mean, yeah, when you have all of those memories just sitting in the back of your head and you can know what kind of the future is, you can kind of tell, like history tends to repeat itself in certain patterns. You can tell what might happen and how it goes and how many times have, has a bad thing happened to you that's actually been the, for the best. Right. Right? Or how many times have a good thing happened to you that's caused tremendous pain and heartache? Like, how could we really tell what's good and bad, what's cruel and what's kind in the moments? It just all blends together. Right. And with, with Paul having these more or less infinite experiences, he's seen the cruelest possible things and the kindest possible things. So his understanding of it is, like we said before, it's just like, far beyond what we can even dream up you know yes it's 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 i don't i don't know jessica may have a little experience of that she can go back also but he has both sides male and female it's double and expansive and just goes yeah jessica tried to swallow in a dry throat and she only says once you denied to me that you were the kids watch Paul only shook his head. I can deny nothing anymore. He looked up in her blue eyes, a blue within blue. The emperor and his people come now. They'll be announced any moment. Stand beside me. I wish a clear view of them. My future bride will be among them. Again, Jessica snapped at her son. Paul! Drink. I don't have a drink. I just have water. (laughs) Don't make the same mistake your father made. So now that Jessica is fully on team... Cheney, she doesn't want him to marry the princess to the emperor to gain the throne, even though that was her plan from like the get go once they got in with the Fremen. So it's like, what what do you want, woman? Nothing I do is ever good enough for you, (laughs) mother. Yep. Uh huh. One hundred percent. That's it. Like what? Okay, I get it. We like we like Cheney. We don't want him to do that. But that's the only way to do it. So, So Paul has a solution. We'll get to it. So Paul only replies that she's a princess and the key to the throne. And very literally, that's all she'll ever be is a token, a key. She's going to be a Gehenna, right? The thing that's used and acquired in battle that's not used for the thing it's supposed to be used for. Wow. A mistake? You think because of what you made me that I cannot feel the need for revenge? Jessica protests that the Princess Irulan is innocent in all of this. And that basically she's saying denying Princess Irulan love 
affection, camaraderie would be a tragedy, just as Jessica was denied the fullness of love by Leto, right? They, but she had the love, but not the title. Everyone's gonna get the title, but not the love, right? There's still the, the, the no, nobody gets fullness in this, especially when it comes to females here. No one, no one quite kind of have the whole experience, right? But Paul reminds her that now nobody is innocent, innocent anymore. Fair. Everyone's playing their part to do the thing. Jessica gestures toward, toward the passage coming from the residency as Cheney approached. Tell that to Cheney, Jessica said. Oh. Paul, <laughs> Paul, oh. Could, <laughs> Paul could see Cheney walking uneasily along the floor, right? They're so used to walking without rhythm that walking with rhythm is just kind of weird. Right. She's land sick. <laughs> yes, exactly it. Her still suit hood is thrown back and there are marks of tears on her cheeks. This is probably the second time that she's cried ever in her life. The first time is right. when she was a baby and you had to get all the crying out. Right. In that moment, he felt the pain of grief strike again. Not only the grief of losing his son, but the grief of seeing his loved one, his Sihaya, in pain. But he could only feel this through Chani's presence. He is dead, beloved, Johnny said. Our son is dead. Paul rose up out of his chair and reached out and touched Johnny's cheek, feeling the dampness of her tears. Just like she did to him that one time. Everything Paul did was held under stiff control. He cannot be replaced, but there will be other sons. It is Usul who promises this. Wow. So, so far we have... Paul is like three characters, four characters. He's Usul, the lover. He's Paul, the duke. He's Muhadib, the leader of the Fremen, and he's the Kizwat Hadarak of the Bene Gesserit foretold legend. And with that, he gently moved her aside and gestured for Stilgar to come. Paul told Stilgar that the emperor is coming. I will stand here, Paul said. Assemble the captives in the open space in the center of the room. They will be kept at a distance at all times, unless I command otherwise. As you command, Muhadib. So Stilgar starts preparing the room, and Paul could see and hear the guards in awe, muttering to themselves. You see, I told you, he knew. No one told him, but he knew. At that <laughs> moment... You could hear the Emperor's entourage echoing down the halls. All the hairdressers, personal guards, women, guildsmen, and all the others were walking to the sound of Sardaukar humming a marching tune. <laughs> Just picture like... Well, yeah, that's it. 100%. It's just it's, as they're walking, like, yeah, all right. Bum, bum. Bum, 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 bum. Dun, dun. Dun, 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 Paul could see Gurney entering the Great Hall first. Gurney hurried over to Stilgar, whispering something in his ear, and then side-eyeing Paul with a strange look in his eye. And then he came up to stand next to his duke. Gurney reported to Paul, They've no throwing weapons. I've made sure of it myself. Which is good, because the last time he brought enemies near Paul, they had throwing weapons and almost killed him. So he's not going to make that mistake twice. Right. But Gurney had something else on his mind. If he couldn't kill his mortal enemy, the Beast Raban, he would settle for killing another Harkonnen. 
Also, good thing he knows he doesn't know that Paul is a Harkonnen. Oh. Yeah. Gurney says, Fade Routha Harkonnen is with him. Shall I cut him out? But Paul says to leave him. Gurney also reports there are, there are guild people with the Emperor, and they're demanding special privileges and threatening an embargo. Mm-hmm. Paul just yells, let him threatened. Jessica hissed behind him. Paul! He is talking about the guild. I'll pull out their fangs presently, Paul said. And Paul then thought about the guild and how they specialized. For so long, they had become a parasite, unable to exist independently. At one point in time, they could have taken Arrakis by force, where all the spice was. When they realized the error of their specialization on the melange awareness, the narcotic of that, the spectrum that they, that, you know, spice that Paul sees when he takes a spice that the navigators use. Mm-hmm. They could have done this. They could have lived their glorious day and died out. But instead, they exist from moment to moment, hoping the seas in which they swim might produce a new host when the old host died. The guild navigators, gifted with limited prescience, had made the fatal decision. They'd always chosen the clear and safe course. That course always leads ever downward into stagnation. Good juice. That's some real good juice. And we, the, with that quote is from earlier in the book too, right? Like we've talked about that before. Yes. And how you make, when you constantly make the safe choice, you will do so and box yourself into a corner until you die. Right. The course that leads ever downward into stagnation, the safe course, the course with no risks, that course leads towards a trap of death. Yikes. So Paul thought to himself, look, let them look closely at their new host. Gurney piped up again at more news of who was in the entourage. He's like, E news here. Did you know, also in the Emperor's entourage, there's a Bene Gesserit Reverend Mother who claims to be a friend of your mother's. My mother has no Bene Gesserit friends, Paul (laughs) said. Gurney glances around the room and then leans down close to Paul's ear and whispers, Thufir Howitt is with them, my lord. I had no chance to see him alone, but he used our old hand signals to say he'd been working for the Harkonnens. Thought you were dead. Says he's to be left among them. Which I think, I think, personally, that that is, by Thufir saying, like, leave me here, means do not let me get close to you. Because if I get close to you, I'm supposed to do something I don't want to do. Leave me alone. If... By leaving me alone, you will do me a service. Paul looked up at the troubadour warrior, his old friend, Gurney. You left Thufir among those? Gurney protested. He wanted it, thought it was best. Paul thought then of the prescient glimpses into possibilities of this moment, flashes of time. In one timeline, Thufir carried a poison needle to assassinate Paul with command of the emperor the code word being this upstart duke the guards step aside and form a short corridor of lances a murmur of swishes and fancy garments and hums of the sardaukar drifted drifted through the halls 
<laughs> it takes all like the severity out of this moment because that's what they're humming. Campiness, right? We're going Frank Herbert campy at the last science fiction moment. I mean, I mean, we <laughs> you could do like the 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 Imperial March of right or something, but it's yeah, it's that's the first that's thing. Worse, I can't... <laughs> that's so much worse. <laughs> the first enter was the Emperor Shaddam the Fourth himself. His helmet had been lost. His red hair a complete mess. One uniform sleeve was missing, and he'd lost his belt somehow, and he was weaponless. So I just want to, how did he get like this? Did he fight somebody or did he like, he's just in the room with the Reverend Mother be like, all right, I need to look bad. Tear my sleeve, wriggle my hair up. All right, do I look good? I'm, I'm going for going for pity here. Come on. I think he's just having a bad day, you know? Like, <laughs> the worst day. Back, he went back to his ship and like tripped on his shoelaces and fell on someone's knife and cut his sleeve open. He's like, dang it! <laughs> he falls over, his hair's all messy. Poor he looks, guy. He looks out the window, a worm just grows across. <laughs> Bad day. Worst day ever. But yet his presence alone was like a forced shield bubble that kept everybody away. He walked in with power still. That is, until a Fremen lance came down hard in front of the Emperor, stopping him in his tracks. When he'd come close enough. At the abrupt stop of the Emperor, his entire entourage then boom, 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 bunched up behind him. It was a montage of color and shuffling, staring faces. Note the color, right? Because for the last 41 chapters, our color palette has been yellow, dark blue night sky, sand, grayscale suits, blue eyes. And now with the Emperor, we have every color imaginable. Right. Think opulence. Think the Hunger Games in the Capitol. Yes, I was about to say that. Yes. Nice. Good. I'm glad we're on the same page here. Paul looked at the group. There were women trying to hide their tears. Might have just crying on Arrakis. You don't do that on Arrakis. There were lackeys who had come to see a Sardaukar victory that are now stunned in silence. Like I like to think of like the Hunger Games. Like, oh no, we came to see the Hunger Games and now they're the ones who are being hunted. Paul saw the bird eyes glaring under a black hood, the old reverend mother whom he met on Caladan all those years ago. And next to her, betrayed to Paul by time itself, Fade Rautha Harkonnen, waiting for his opportunity. Paul's eyes followed the movement behind Fade to a man whom he'd never seen before. He had a weaselish face, narrow, awkward, and something deep down told Paul that he should fear this man. <laughs> he didn't know why him. Evan, who is this and why should Paul fear him? This is the great and powerful Jeff Goldblum himself. Yes. Henry, right? And just an awkward staring around someone's shoulder like, hello, Mrs. Please don't look at me. Mm. Yes. So let's set the stage. We have the Fremen have like have these group of people in like kind of like a circle. Paul is sitting in his chair. Next to him, he has his mother. On the other side, you got Stilgar and Gurney. And I like to think Cheney's in this group somewhere. And this is the new House Atreides. Paul leaned over to his mother and whispered, That man to the left, 
The evil-looking one. Who is that? Jessica looked, recognizing the face. Count Fenring. The one who was immediately here before us. So, aka, this is his old house, too. He knows where all the traps are. He's lived here. The genetic eunuch and a killer. Paul mm. thought to himself, this must be the emperor's errand boy. The one who does the dirty work. The thought shocked Paul's system. He'd seen the emperor in countless possible futures, but he'd never seen the count. And then it occurred to Paul that he had seen his own dead body in countless possible futures, but never seen the moment of his death, nor the killer. Could the count be the one to kill him? Paul. Lastly, mm. Paul's attention fell on a slender, blonde woman with green eyes. She had a face of aristocratic nobility. Beauty. A face who had seen no pain or grief. Completely undefeated. Without being told, he knew who it was. Who is it, Evan? It was the Bene Gesserit trained face that Paul had seen in countless visions. The Princess Royal Irulan. Alright, stop. He saw it in countless visions. Wow. So before, he used to see Cheney in visions. Before he came to Arrakis. So now he's with Cheney. He's dreaming of another woman that he's like, oh, that's the one. That's just got to be embarrassing. I just, that just thought caught me right now. Like, oh, okay. And then Paul saw another face. A shameful face. Thufer Howitt, his old teacher and friend. Paul could see his, his hunched shoulders oh. and how fragile age had overtaken him. So, yeah. Paul called out to the crowd for Thufer. Let him stand free. Gurney made sure he understood what the Duke Paul was saying. Thufer said himself, leave him be, but Paul demanded he stand free. So, of course, Gurney obeyed. How it All shuffled right. forward. The Fremen lance was lifted and how it moved forward. Paul got up out of his chair. He took one step forward and how it started talking. How it had a wrong that needed to be righted. Lady Jessica, I have learned but this day how I've wronged you. You need not forgive me. Paul waited, looking at his mom. Jessica says nothing. Paul then continues towards Howitt. Thufer, old friend. As you can see, my back is towards no door. I just get flashbacks in this moment to the time Jessica and Thufer went at it and how Thufer stood with his back or like towards the door and like he could have killed him and this that moment and everything else. Like, no, I'm embracing you fully. I am not running away from this moment. And how it responds, the universe is full of doors. Paul replied, I am my father's son. More like your grandfather's. You've his, you have his same manner, the look in his eyes, how it said. So Evan, what was, uh, what was the old Duke Atreides known for? Uh, bullfighting. Bullfighting? Getting in the ring and facing death. Yes. Also, know how cool, just let's just say, how cool would it be if, like, I know my grandparents, but I didn't know them when they were young? It would be so cool to be like, wow, mm -hmm. you really do take after your grandfather, your great-grandmother, because they actually knew them, but you really don't know. It's like how much of that genetics gets passed through you. I don't know. I just think it's a cool moment. Yeah. Paul looked at Thufur moving closer, telling him, yet I am my father's son. I like to think he's taking a step closer to Thufa here that he's well within striking range. He's like opening the door for this moment. Yeah. For I say to yeah. you, Thufa, 
that in payment for your years of service to my family, you may now ask anything you wish of me. Anything at all. Do you need my life now, Thufer? It is yours. Paul stepped forward, even closer now. His hands are at his sides, defenseless. Paul could see the eyes of Howitt, and he could see his awareness growing. Howitt knows that Paul knows of the treachery. Paul moved in closer, pitching his voice in a half whisper so only Howitt could hear him. And Paul says, if Thufer were to strike him, now is the time. You should do it now. Howitt fought against everything, right? He's got the poison that's pretty much coming out at this moment. He's been so long without the antidote because there's no one to give it to him anymore. And he's got this, this conditioning now that he's supposed to do. He's fighting everything. Just, just stand before Paul and say, I wanted to stand before you once more, my Duke. Paul could see the force Howitt needed to exert just to say this. And he reached out to keep him from falling. Paul asked him if there was pain, to which Howitt said, there is pain, my duke, but the pleasure is greater. Summoning the last of his strength, Howitt turned towards the emperor and the crowd, extending his left hand, palm up to show the tiny needle that had been surgically placed there. See, majesty, see your traitor's needle. Do you think that I, who'd given my life to the Atreides, would have less now? And at that, Howard's body went limp. Paul caught him, slowly lowering, lowering his body to the ground. Quickly, two Fremen guards rushed over to take the body of Thufur Howard, the greatest Mentat assassin, away. Gosh, that part... First of all, that part just got dropped very casually in the middle of this chapter, um, to the point where I was like, wait, did Thufur just die? But also, it's you know what I mean. Like it's it's yes, it's this really intense moment, and then with like one little gesture, he shows like, "Hey, I'd rather kill myself than kill him." So bye, and he collapses and he's dead. Yes, you know that's Yui. That's how you're supposed to do it. That's how you're supposed to deal with treachery, Yui. Mm. But also, you look at the the Atreides retainer, the men. They were there, right? You have Gurney, Idaho, and Howitt. Uh, all of them saw Paul as Duke before they died. All right, Duncan Idaho was the right. first to call him that. Um, Gurney found him as Muad'Dib, yep. and now Howitt, in his last moments, saw Paul as Duke. And I think that's that's just that's just tender. Yeah. But now it's time for other matters. Paul spoke with extreme inflection and tone. Majesty. Paul noted at how, at the word, Princess Erlon was jerked to attention. She had been utterly trained by the Bene Gesserit. She was a slave to it. <clears throat> the Emperor cleared his throat. Perhaps my respected kinsmen believe he has things his own way now. <laughs> Nothing could be more remotely from facts. You violated a convention using atomics. Paul cut him off. P.S. No one can see, cuts the Emperor off. Paul says, blah, blah, blah. I use atomics not against people, but against something that got in the way of seeing you, <laughs> your majesty. Because I need to ask you for an explanation for some of your strange activities. The emperor threatens again. There is a must armada of great houses in space over Arrakis right now. I have but to say the word and they... Paul just laughs this off. Oh, yes. I almost forgot about them. Right. Because that's a pointless threat. 
Paul searched the faces <laughs> of the Emperor's group and he found who he was looking for. Two fat guild agents. One tall one and one short one. Paul pointed to them, you two, get out there immediately and dispatch messages that will get the fleet on their way home. The taller guild agent spoke up. The guild doesn't take orders from you. Now the two agents were in the front, their fat bellies pushing against the Fremen lance holding the entourage at bay. With a nod of Muhadib, the lance was lifted and the two men stepped out. They started to talk about a possible embargo, then Paul spoke up. If, you, if I hear any more nonsense from either of you, I'll give the order to destroy all spikes on Arrakis forever. Are you mad? The guildsman responded, taking a half, spe half step back. You know, that is the clear easy path is always the path towards stagnation, right? Paul asked the guildsmen to look towards their inner eye to see if Paul had the power. They both nodded that he did, but yelled out, Yes, you could, but you mustn't. You would also blind yourself too and condemn us all towards a slow death. Have you any idea what that means to be deprived of the spice liqueur once you're addicted? Paul held his head high and only said, the eye that looks ahead to the safe course is closed forever. If this happens, the guild is crippled. Humans become isolated clusters on little isolated planets. You know, I might do this thing in a pure spite or out of pure boredom. <laughs> the guild agents start to get really anxious. The tall one speaks out saying, uh, let us talk privately. I'm sure we can come to some compromise. Paul only laments. He gets tired of this argument. And if they don't leave soon, there will be no talk. Paul nods to the communication equipments by the fireplace. Ah, you may use our equipment. You see, you didn't bring your phone. Use ours get to get the word out. The tall guildsman speaks up again. By the way, what the hell, short guildsman? Say something. <laughs> <laughs> the tall one says, they first need to talk it over. But Paul's had enough. He needs to show them what real power is. And so he uses his old grandfather's technique. Do it. The power to destroy a thing is the absolute control over it. You both agree I have this power. You are not here to discuss or compromise. You will obey or suffer the immediate consequences. Dang. The short guildsman finally grows some balls. He means it, he says. <laughs> Slowly, they move towards the fireplace to make the call. <clears throat> Gurney leans over to the duke. Will they do it? Yes. Paul tells Gurney that the guild has a limited, narrow vision of time. They can only see ahead to a blank wall, marking consequences of disobedience. Every guild navigator on every ship will obey. They see this blank wall and they know what's going to happen. Right. While the tall and the short guild agents make the call, Paul turns back to the emperor. Okay, okay, question. Paul is still just sitting in this chair at this point, right? Yeah. I picture kind of like in Black Panther, Umbaku is just sitting in like his chair, just kind of like leaning back, like, you know, like doesn't really care. And he's like, oh, yeah, uh, you two uh, go call your buddies, you know, get your boy. It's just like <laughs> but I like to imagine it's uh, unaffected, but I like to imagine it's like an old office chair that's just ratty, just like he's right. just sitting there. Yes, all right, come on. Yeah, he gets up, he sits down, but it's only for a few moments. <clears throat> While well, the tall and the short guild agents make their call, Paul turns back to the emperor, thinking how the guild has allowed their host, the emperor, to last this long. 
Right? You got one job, dude. Keep the spies flowing. You failed. <clears throat> so he speaks to the emperor. When they permitted you to mount your father's throne, it was only on the assurance that you kept the spies flowing. You failed. Do you know the consequences? Pride raged in Shaddam the fourth of his name. Nobody permitted me to. And I'm just going to say, all right, I'm sorry. If you're the fourth of your lineage, the second, the third, you have a job to do, right? You have a name to uphold. And no amount right. of privilege is going to save you right now. <laughs> Paul barked at Shaddam. Stop playing the fool. The guilt, the economy, the Imperium is all like a village beside a river. It needs the river to keep flowing for commerce to happen, for life to keep moving. Nobody can dam the river because everyone needs it to flow. The spice is the river, but I have built a dam. But my dam, you cannot destroy without destroying the river. The emperor's dumbstruck. He can only run his fingers through his red matted hair as he looks to the guildsman, <clears throat> still on the phone, please save me. <laughs> Help. <laughs> Paul continues. Even your Bene Gesserit truth sayer is trembling. There are poisons that Bene Gesserit can use for their tricks, but once the Reverend Mother uses the spice, nothing else works the same. So basically he's saying, if he kills the spice, he kills the guild, he kills the Bene Gesserits, he kills all commerce, everybody's stranded, and all the systems, all the frothaluches, the little things holding up the world, get crushed. Bye-bye. Right, and that's, that's what... Duke Leto really want. I want to get rid of these, why you have these systems in place that no one benefits from. Like, why are we doing this? Uh, right, so that, that's what's happening. Finally, the old witch presses forward and stands against the lance. Paul addresses her. Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mahaya. It's been a long time since Caladan. She, of course, still sees Paul as the boy he used to be and talks over him to Jessica. Well, Jessica, I see your son is indeed the one. For that, you can be forgiven, even the abomination. Paul quieted the deep, cold anger he felt against the Bene Gesserit sisterhood. You've never had the right or cause to forgive my mother of anything, he said. At that, the old witch locked eyes with Paul. They held each other's gaze till Paul broke the power struggle. You try your tricks on me. Where is your gom jabbar? Try looking where you dare not look. You'll find me there staring out at you. <laughs> the old Reverend Mother dropped her gaze saying, Remember, I welcomed you to the rank of human. Don't besmirch that. <laughs> at that, Paul spoke to everyone who could hear, and he told them the entire Betty Jesuit plan. He has outed them completely. <laughs> Behold, observe this Reverend Mother, patient in a patient cause. She could have waited with her sisters 90 generations to produce the proper combination of genes and environment to produce the one person their schemes required. Observe her. She knows now that 90 generations have produced that person. Here I stand. But I will never do her bidding. Whoop. Jessica! The Reverend Mother screams, silence him! Jessica only stared back. Silence him yourself, she said. <laughs> so I'd like to note here how the Bene, the Bene Gesserit always, they're used to control. Trying to manipulate something, they, could, they, want, they want something they can manipulate, and when it comes, 
And when that thing comes, they don't know how to surrender and actually face the responsibility of their actions that they've been manipulating and playing behind the scenes. And now they don't have that person and they can't just say, they can't face up. Paul continues to out the entire Bene Gesserit breeding program, how they have every part and responsibility of what is happening today in this moment. Yet they did nothing. They continued to intermix and breed according to their master plan, believing they knew that it was best for the human race. And how they never will bend Paul, the Kizwatch Haderach, to their schemes and desires. The old woman could only hiss at him. You, you mustn't speak of those things. Silence, Paul roared. The words seemed to take substance as it twisted through the air between them under Paul's control. The old woman reeled back as if hit by a physical blow. She could only whisper, Jessica, Jessica. <laughs> she, she blames Jessica because uh, she did cause this by disobeying the plan. The biggest betrayal in Bene Gesserit history. Paul continued to berate this old woman, saying, I remember your gom jabbar and that box of pain, <laughs> that test to be human. Now remember mine. I can kill you with a word. At this, every Fremen in the room <gasps> gasped, looking knowingly at each other. Did not the legend say, and his word shall carry death eternal to those who stand against righteousness? Like, the legend is only growing. Yeah. Wait, but what did he mean by I can kill you with a word? Uh, just the voice. like, Or, or like, he would just tell his, the Fremen and they would all kill everybody. Like, yeah. there's lots of different things they could, like, he could okay. mean. I didn't, I didn't know if it was, like, his voice, his, like, capital V voice was now so powerful that he could just look at the Reverend Mother and be like, Mm, kill yourself and she's just like you know like <laughs> I mean that's definitely a thing the the David Lynch films use this line as like a thing and I don't like it but it's definitely a thing they use that his 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 name is a killing word um but no it's he says I can kill you with a word either with the power of his voice to overpower her all her Bene Gesseritness or with though just now, Fremen would kill everybody in the room at the blink of an eye if he said something. It that's, could be multiple things here. We I don't think it's ever known. If you're in the comments in the live and you know, let me know. Uh, where are we at? Okay. Oh, yeah. Every Fremen's like, oh, my gosh. So now, all right, Paul's trying to end this. He's already tired of it. Get to the right. point. I need. We need one thing to move on. We need the key. Paul now turned his attention towards the princess. Paul is trying to wrap up and move on. Majesty, Paul said to Shaddam, still looking at his daughter. We both know the way out of our difficulty. The emperor protests, claiming Muhadib is nothing but a religious adventurer without a family. But Paul reminds the emperor, <clears throat> so like literally seconds ago, you called me your royal kinsman. The emperor protests, saying, I am your ruler. So ruler of what? Is he a kinsman or is he not? All right, and you are you are we together? Are we not? What's got what's what? Make up your mind. Yeah. What do you what do you think? The emperor is just trying everything, and nothing is working. Right. 
The Emperor's still nervously <laughs> glancing at the guild agents. Please. Yes, how's that call going? Can you help me? No? <laughs> no? And I imagine like the guild agents are like picked up the phone but never dialed. They're just like, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to act like this. Paul says he could force the matter if he wanted to. He could use the voice. He could make it happen. At this, the princess put her hand on her father's shoulders, moving forward using her silky Bene Gesserit tone of voice. Father. But having lived in a house of all women, Bene Gesserit women, at that, uh, the emperor knows what's up. Don't try your tricks on me. You need not do this. We have other resources. But Irulan reminds the emperor of his admiration of Duke Leto and how this upstart duke is still his son. The old Reverend Mother Witch leans over and whispers into Shaddam's ear. So, then camera pans out and we have our two factions again. The Emperor one and the Atreides one. Now Jessica leans over to Paul saying how Gaius Helmahayim is now pleading Paul's case. Because part of the pact of the ruling means that Bene Gesserit must also be on the throne. Erlan is the one that was groomed for this. Chani then comes up to Paul. Not blind to the fact that Paul is about to take a wife. And asked, does she need to leave? Because this was going to be weird. Paul tells her to stay. That she'll never leave his side again. And how he wants to relive these moments through her eyes later. Through her wisdom. What binds the two of them can never be loosed. So now in the Great Hall you have two factions. Fremen's and the Atreides whispering. And the, em and the Emperor and the Bene Gesserit. And everyone's just whispering to each other. Well, it's like debate team when you want to figure out what's happening here. <laughs> Paul tells his group that part of the Bene Gesserit agreement is that a Bene Gesserit must sit on the throne. Irulan's the one to train. And Jessica sarcastically mocks Paul. Hmm, really? Is that is that their plan? But Paul, <laughs> Paul doesn't see the sarcasm. He just says, isn't it obvious? Jessica bites back saying, I see the signs. My question is meant to remind you that you shouldn't teach me in the matters which I instructed you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Paul could see a small, cold smile embrace his mother's lips. And at that, mother and son have been reunited. Right. In, in sarcastic comments back and forth to each other. Classic. <laughs> Classic Paul and Jessica. And then Gurney leaned forward between the two of them saying, I remind you, my lord, there's a Harkonnen in the bunch. <laughs> Nodding nonchalantly towards Fade. Who is uh, leaning against the lance just waiting for his time? You know, the one with the squinty eyes. An evil face, I ever say. You promised me. Paul just cut him off. Thank, thank you, Gurney. But Gurney piped up with excitement. It's the Gnaw Baron. Now the old fat man is dead. He'll do for what I've... Paul looked at, the, at Gurney. Huh, can, can you take him? Paul. Gurney just looked offended. Paul turned back toward his mother. That argument between the Emperor and the Witch has gone on too long. Don't you think, Mother? Indeed, Jessica says. Paul raises his voice. Majesty, is there a Harkonnen among you? Royal disdain revealed itself in the way the Emperor looked at Paul. I believe my entourage has been placed under, per, under your protection. Paul says, yes. But he was only asking for you know, informational purposes only. Do the Harkonnens really travel in the Imperial entourage? Or is the Harkonnen merely hiding behind the technicality out of cowardice? 
The Emperor plays along, of course, that of course they're part of the entourage, but Paul replies that Gurney wants to kill a Harkonnen, so what do you want to do about this? And then, from the crowd, Fade shouts, Conway! Your father named this vendetta Atreides. You call me cowardice while you hide among your women and offer to send a lackey against me. So, Evan, what do you remember about Fade the character? Let's just give a brief overview real fast. Who is Fade again? Um, we saw him in the arena. Um, but he had, like, set up the fight. He was, like, you know, never in any danger at all. And he was, like, trained in the arena and stuff. And then he lived with the, with the, with the, the Baron Harkonnen. But he was kind of just, like, whack. That's what I remember about him. He was kind of just, like, eh you'll do, you know? Right. He, yeah, he'd been trained in, he'd been trained in fighting in the slave pits. He had killed like thousands of slaves and like fighting is what he loves to do. So, I mean, now he's, he's just itching for a fight. The old witch leaned into the emperor's ear saying something harshly, but the emperor pushed the old woman away saying, there are strict rules for Conley. Conley it is. This is the way out of the situation. If Fade kills, you know, Paul, I'm problem solved. Yeah, let's try it. But nothing else has worked. Let's go for it. Jessica protested to Paul. Gurney protested to Paul, but Paul ignored them all. He felt a Harlequin abandon take over his emotions. As if let's he, go. It's as if he were a puppet. Something happened and clicked and something inside of his body just started moving. There was no thought behind it. It was just action. He took off his robe and handed it to his mother. He began unstrapping his still, still suit, and he sensed how the universe focused in on this moment. Jessica protested one last time. There's no need for this, Paul. There are easier ways. Paul stepped out of his still suit and unsheathed the Chris knife. I know, he said. Poison an assassin, all the old familiar ways. Now Gurney protested. You promised me a Harkonnen! Paul looked at the ink-mined scar across Gurney's jawline. You owe me, my lord, my sister, my years in the slave pits. Paul only responded, who has suffered more? My father, my good friends, my companions, Thufer, Duncan, my years as a fugitive. Both you and I know the rules for Conley. Now Cheney protests. Muhadib need not do this thing. Like, Paul maybe. Muhadib? No, 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 no. Any, right. any Fremen could kill this guy. Like, come on. At least that's what she thinks. But yeah, that's... He need not do this. Paul glanced at her, and he saw the fear for him in her eyes. But the Duke Paul must. Gurney then continuing to protest, yells at Paul, this Harkonnen animal. Paul stops in his tracks, was on the verge of revealing his own ancestry, turns to look at his mother, and she's like, don't do it, don't do it. No, can't, no, 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 no. We're good, we're good. No, 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 no. And he just says, but this being has human shape, Gurney, and deserves human doubt. Now please stand aside. Paul walked forward, feeling the weight of this Chris knife in his hand. 
Jessica took a hand and put it on Gurney's shoulders, thinking how Paul could not be stopped in this moment, and how very much like his grandfather he was in this moment. The only thing he could do to help was not distract him. The Emperor looked at the meaty Fade, right? Heavy shoulders, well-built. And then he looked at the stringy Paul, whipcord-like. You could count Paul's ribs. And the Emperor's like, ah, I got good odds on this one. This is gonna be a great. Jessica leaned in close to Paul saying how, giving him the Bene Gesserit secret, right? The Bene Gesserit usually implant a word deep in the recesses of the brain via the old old pleasure pain methods and how Paul could use this word if Fade, and it would leave Fade flaccid and defenseless. But Paul says he wants no special advantage for this fight. And everyone needs to step out of the way. Paul stepped towards the Emperor's group and Gurney turns to Jessica and asks, why, why is Paul doing this? Does he think to get himself killed to achieve martyrdom? Is this this Fremen religious prattle? But Jessica only buried her head in her hands, knowing that she had no clue why Paul was doing this. Like, he does not need to do this, but he's doing it anyway, just like his grandfather entering the ring with the bull. Gurney again, is this a religious thing? And Jessica only replies, be silent and, and pray. The Emperor now sees this as his last chance. Maybe the Harkonnen kills his upstart and everything goes back to the way it was. A slow grin crosses Shaddam's face. If Fade Harkonnen of my entourage so wishes, I relieve him of all restraint and give him freedom to choose his own course in this. The Emperor waved a hand towards Paul's Vatican guards. One of your rabble has my belt and short blade. If Fade Routha wishes, he may meet you with my blade in his hand. Without missing a beat, Fade chimes in, I wish it. And Paul watched elation hit Fade's face. The place was cleared for battle. There was a flurry of robes and scraping of feet as everybody obeyed Paul's commands and they got in place for the show. Now, Paul looked over at the guild ancients at the communication. Still on hold or something because they're not doing anything. Just frowning <laughs> at, they're just frowning at Paul for his decision. Like, Bro, this is not the safe course. What are you doing? This is not how you're being a good guild member. Do you want to kill all the spice? I'm so confused. Yeah. Paul reminded himself that they're accustomed to seeing the future and that they're blind in this place. But then again, so was he. Paul sampled in his prescience the time nexus boiling around him. So much was focused on this moment, in this place, with these people. Even the faint gaps were closing. Here was the unborn jihad he knew. Here was a race consciousness he'd once known as his terrible purpose. Here was reason enough for the Kizrat Tataraka that was on El Gayib, or even the halting schemes of the Bene Gesserit. The entire race of humans had felt its own dormancy. It felt itself grown stale. He knew now only the need to experience turmoil in which the genes would mingle and the strong new mixture of genes would survive. All humans were alive as an unconscious single organism in this moment. Experience a kind of sexual heat that could override any barrier. 
and Paul saw how futile any efforts of his were to change any small bit of this. He had thought he would oppose the jihad inside himself, but the jihad would still be. His legions would rage out from Arrakis even without him. They need only the legend he had already become. He had shown them the way. He had given them mastery over the guild, which needed the spice to exist. All right. Let's just pause real fast because there was a lot there. Talking about how in this moment, he felt, he felt the human race, all of it, fading away, needing to take a risk, needing to mix their genetic code and let the strong survive. And he knew that in doing this, the jihad would be part of that part of that mixing, part of that turmoil. The universe needed to be thrown out of balance again so it could find itself. And there's nothing he can do about it. The pain, the kindness, like it would be a kindness and cruelty to let the jihad happen so the human race could keep going even though that's not what he wants to happen. It's that cruelty and kindness balance again. Oh boy. Okay. That's a lot. That's a lot. I, I don't even it, have anything to say. <laughs> that thought will be built on in more books. Right. That's the that's the thought. This time next is everything boils down to this moment and humans needing to you just explode and just do something crazy. So as fate unclothed before him, he sensed failure pervade him. Earlier in the chapter, we talked about needing to fail. Here it is, that failure. He failed to stop the jihad. He, it just happened. This is the climax, Paul thought. From here, the future will open. And if I die here, they will say I sacrificed myself, that my spirit may lead them. And if I live, they'll say nothing can oppose Muhadib. Fade called out with the Imperial Canley ritual way. Is the Atreides ready? Paul responded in a Fremen way. May your knife chip and shatter. And the duel began. Fade went to pick up the Emperor's blade in the middle of the room, keeping all eyes on Paul. Fade could feel the excitement bubbling up inside him. Ooh, so exciting. This is the fight of his dreams. Man against man, no shield. Skill against skill. Fade can only imagine the possibilities that would open to him if he killed this troublesome duke. If he killed him, heck, heck he might even get the slender green-eyed princess as a reward. Ooh. All right. She'd do well in his uh, house. I'm not going to say any more to that. <laughs> And besides, what kind of match could this be? This backworld adventure will possibly have against a trained Harkonnen who knew every device and every treachery trained by thousands of arena combats. And of course, of course, the Emperor's knife was poisoned. Why uh. wouldn't it be? It's the Emperor's. <laughs> Meet your death, fool, Fade called out. Shall we fight, cousin? Paul asked. They circled each other like cats, crouched low, watching each other's every move. Fade winked at Paul. <laughs> How beautiful you dance. Already, Paul wants Fade to shut up, <laughs> thinking how he talks too much. He's a talker. 
watching the fight. Paul, what Paul said did not go unnoticed by a certain somebody. That old Reverend Mother noticed how Paul called Fade Cousin. Uh-oh. And that could only mean that he knew the ancestry, ancestry they shared. That, of course, only the records know. Bum, bum, bum. Another proof that he was, indeed, the Kismar Tatarak. This entire fight would be a major catastrophe for the Bene Gesserit breeding scheme. Oh my gosh. If Paul dies, there goes 90 generations of work. If they both die, at least they have the offspring of Fade and, you know, Lady Margot Fennering. That's a possibility. And then again, there was Alia, the abomination to deal with. It's basically like this fight means no win for the Bene Gesserit. Yes, everything just up in smoke. All that work, all thousands of years, gone. Fate keeps talking, blah, 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 asking if Paul, because of his pagan Fremen religion, would like the Reverend Mother to bless his spirit for the journey to the afterlife. They still circle each other. This actually makes Paul smile. The terrible purpose rages within him. But he knows he needs to focus on this moment right here, right now. Fate attacks, huh, leaping in the air, shifting the knife to the other hand. Classic Jameis move. But Paul <laughs> dodges easily, just like he did with Jameis. Fade <laughs> still had some shield conditioning, but he sensed he, Paul thought he probably had fought some unshielded foes before. Fade keeps talking, Paul keeps circling. The words of Idaho came back to Paul, long ago on the practice floor of Caladan. Use these first moments to study. Take your time and be sure. I mean, that would be cool if we got that moment in like the first chapter, but you know, cool, Frank, we, we know it's a flashback. Cool. <laughs> Fade kept talking and Paul thought, he's a little overconfident against a man who's led forces at, to victory against Sardaukar legions. Come right. on. Fade notices hesitation in Paul and says, why prolong the inevitable? You but keep me from exercising my rights over this ball of dirt. And Paul thinks, huh, it could be a flip dart. He could have something hidden. Fade asks why Paul doesn't talk and leaps huh, in mid-sentence. Paul expected a slight hesitation, but it wasn't there. He barely dodged the down flash of the blade and felt its tip scratch his arm. He silenced the sudden pain there, realizing that the first attack was a trick. Trick within tricks within tricks. Classic Harkonnen. Fade boasts that he learned that himself, that move, through for how it. He gave me first blood, Fade said. Too bad the old fool didn't live to see it. Idaho's words came rushing into Paul's brain. Expect only what happens in the fight. That way you'll never be surprised. Bum, 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 bum. Paul and Fade circle each other, and Paul wondered if there was poison on the blade. His man had inspected it, but there could be something. Paul realigned his own metabolism, right? Kizbark Tatarak's amazingness, to match his threat and change the molecules. But he still felt the rush of doubt. His enemies had plans within plans. Fade barked to Paul. That woman you were talking to over there, is she something special to you? A pet, perhaps? Will she deserve my special attentions? Fade leaped again. And Paul, a smile frozen on his face, fainted as though the drug had slowed him. At the last instant, dodged 
the, the down flashing arm of the Crips knife point. Paul got him, but only like a little bit. They ducked sideways in a way. Ah, treachery! They chatted, he poisoned me! I feel the poison in my arm! Paul finally spoke. Only a little acid to counter the support of the separific in the emperor's blade. Fade <laughs> only smiled. He lifted his blade in his left hand for a mock salute. His eyes raged behind the knife. Paul shifted the knife hands and they started circling again. Fade inched closer and closer to Paul with every circle. Fade tried to juke Paul and it ended up intertwining knife hands and they gripped each other in a restraining. Paul was cautious about Fade's right hip. That's where he thought the flip dart would be. Yeah. But Paul failed to see the needle beneath the belt life on the left hip. Mm. The slightest shift warned Paul. The tiny point missed Paul's flesh by the barest fraction. Paul reminded himself, this is how the Imperium works. Treachery within treachery within treachery within treachery. Using the Bene Gesserit trained movement, Paul snagged Fade and took him to the ground. But Fade was on top, pressing his hip downwards towards Paul. You see it there on my hip? Your death, fool, Fade said. Fade started twisting his hips to get closer to Paul's flesh. It'll stop your muscles and my knife will finish you. Paul strained and all the voices of his past lives came rushing back to him, pleading with him, use the word, use the word, do it, stop this. Paul gasped aloud, I will not say it. This caught Fade off guard, just enough for Paul to find a weakness of balance and to slip out from underneath. The needle in Fade's hip planted in the floor, causing him to not be able to turn fast enough. Paul mounted on top and drove his Chris Knights up through Fade's jaw and into his brain. <laughs> Fade jerk, uh, sagged back, dead. Paul felt his breath come back to him as he pushed away from his body, his knife still in his hand, raising his eyes with deliberate slowness, for dramatic effect, of course, <laughs> and locked eyes with the Emperor. Majesty, Paul said, your force is reduced by one more. Shall we shed this sham and pretense and let us discuss what might be? So the Emperor's got one more play. The Emperor turned quickly to his old friend, Count Fenring. The Count met his stare. The thought lay clear between them, their history, their association, their friendship. Slowly, Fenring turned towards Paul. Do it, the Emperor hissed. The Count focused on Paul, seeing with the eyes Lady Margaret had trained in the Bene Gesserit way, aware of the mystery and the hidden grandeur that shone in his youth. Benring thought to himself that he could indeed kill this boy, but something in his own secret depths stayed him. Paul, aware of some of this, the time Nexus was going crazy, at least Paul understood why he could never see the Count. Benring was one of the many might-have-beens and almost Kizrak Hatterak, crippled by a flaw in the genetic pattern. Overwhelming compassion overflowed in Paul. This was the first sense of brotherhood he'd ever experienced. Benring looking at Paul, seeing his emotion said, Majesty, I must refuse. Rage overtook the emperor. He took two steps forward and clocked his friend across the jaw as hard as he could. Benring only looked up at the Emperor, speaking with a deliberate lack of emphasis. We have been friends, Majesty. What I do now is out of friendship. I shall forget you struck me. 
Paul clears his throat just to make sure everyone knows that uh, it's all about him. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> We're speaking of the throne, Majesty. The Emperor whirled and glared at Paul. I sit on the throne, he barked. Paul responds calmly. You shall have a throne on Seleucus Secundus. The Emperor is shocked. He thinks Paul means he'll be sent to his own prison planet. But what Paul is kind of actually saying is that things are changing in the Imperium. A time of life and abundance are about to happen. And Seleucus Secundus is a planet Paul wishes to tame. And he will need somebody to rule it. Who better than the former Emperor? The Sardaukar already trust him. Paul's words grew in the Emperor's mind. He was still glaring across the room at this 18-year-old Muhadib. Now we see your true motives. And what of Arrakis? Another garden world of gentle things. The Fremen have the word of Muhadib, Paul said. There will be flowing river here, open to the sky and green oasis rich with good things. But we have the spice to think of too. Thus there will always be a desert on Arrakis and fierce winds and trials to toughen a man. We Fremen have a saying. God created Arrakis to train the faithful. One cannot go against the word of God. The old Bene Gesserit heard what Paul said and glimpsed the jihad in his words. You cannot loose these people upon the universe. Paul snapped at the Reverend Mother. You will think back to the gentle ways of the Sardaukar, Paul snapped. The Reverend Mother could only whisper, knowing what would happen. You, you, you cannot. Paul looked at the Princess Royal and then back to the Emperor. Best be done quickly, huh? <laughs> the Emperor looked uneasily at his daughter. But again, she just touched his arm and spoke in all the Bene Gesserit soothingness. Mm -hmm. For this, for this I was trained, father. Jadam took a deep breath, straightened, standing stiffly with a look that he remembered his ancient ancestry. Who will negotiate for you, kinsman? Which basically means it's over. This is now the time to sort out the spoils. Who gets what in the Imperium now that Paul can rule? Paul turned to his mother standing next to Cheney. He walked over to them, looking at Cheney. Cheney only said that she knew the reasons, and if he must, do it. Yeah. But he hearing the secret tears in her voice, he touched her cheeks. She'd lost a son, and now she's about to lose a husband and a lover. But Paul reassured her. My Sihaya need fear nothing. Ever. Paul then looked at his mother. Will you negotiate for me, mother? And with Cheney by her side. She has wisdom and sharp eyes, and has widely said that no one bargains tougher than a Fremen. True. She will be looking through the eyes of her love for me, and with the thought of her sons-to-be, and what they will need. Listen to her. Jessica sensed the harsh calculation in her son and put a shudder through her. What are your instructions, she said. Paul says he wants the Emperor's entire Chome Company holdings as dowry. Bam! I want all of it, Mom. Take it all. <laughs> Jessica was almost speechless. The entire? <laughs> Paul said the Emperor is to be completely stripped. Oh, by the way, and then Gurney is to get a Chome dictatorship and have a fife over Caladan. There will be titles and attendant power for every surviving Atreides man. We won, Mom. We get to go. The Caladan is ours again. 
Jessica yeah. asked about the Fremen, to which Paul said, The Fremen are mine. What they receive shall be what they receive shall be dispensed by Muhadib. It shall begin with Stilgar as governor of Arrakis. Jessica then asked the question, What about me? Paul asked his mother, What do you want? But he already knows the answer. Jessica looks at Gurney. Perhaps Caladan? I'm not certain. I've become too much of the Fremen. Too much Reverend Mother. I need a time of peace and stillness to think. Paul looked at his mother. You shall have it. And anything else that Gurney or I can give you. I like how he's giving his mom to Gurney in that moment. Like, hey, if you need some companionship, I know a guy. <laughs> yeah. He's a good guy, he's a good guy. Gotta he's get a good past guy. the scar, but he's good. I'll sing to you. Let's, I like that. <laughs> I'll take good care of you, Ma. Jessica nodded, nodded, feeling suddenly old and tired. She looked at Chani. And for the royal concubine? Chani only whispered, no title for me. Nothing, I beg of you. Paul stared down into her eyes, remembering her suddenly as she once stood with her little Leto in her arms. And now their child was dead because of all this violence inflicted upon them and brought to them. Paul whispered to her, I swear to you now that you need no title. That woman over there will be my wife in title only. It's all political to ease the great houses. Yet that princess shall have no more than my name. No child, no touch, no soft glance, no instant of desire. Chani, knowing men, says, you say that now. As she, as she looked past <laughs> Paul to the slender, aristocratic, green-eyed princess. But Jessica only right. whispered to Chani, do you know so little of my son? That princess there, standing so arrogant and snobby. They say she has the pretensions of a literary nature. Let's hope she finds solace in such things. She will have little else. Jessica, Jessica bitterly laughed at the situation and how that's got to suck for Princess Erlon. And now we know why we have all the quotes at the beginning of each chapter is because Irulan wrote a lot of books about Muhadib. Right. Which, I mean, like, is that really a punishment? Maybe she does have that literary thing. She does just want to write some books. She's fine. You know, maybe. I don't know. Jessica and Janie were still looking at Irulan, who I imagine is either like staring off blankly or like looking around the Great Hall thinking how she's going to decorate this. Think on it, Janie, Jessica said. That princess will have the name, yet she will live as less than a concubine, never to know a moment of tenderness from a man to whom she is bound. While we, Janie, we who carry the name and title of concubine, history will call us wives. Slowly, the camera pulls back from their conversation going upward through the ceiling of the Great Hall, going ever upwards to exit the atmosphere of Arrakis. The camera continues to pull back through solar system and through other solar systems to every planet the Fremen will touch with the Jihad of Muhadib, till there's nothing but black space. And then we see the pulsating black circle of the place that only the Kizmar Cataract can look. And the title comes up, Dune by Frank Herbert. The end. Woo. 
<laughs> we did it. Yeah. I mean, okay. That was, first of all, that was a beautiful little rendition that you just did. I literally just pictured a cut to black. Oh, yeah. No. You're, cut to black is definitely. And history shall call us wives. Because that's how Boom. it felt, you know? Oh, yeah. It, how did the ending feel? Now that we're there, this ending is, is it feels like you've just, Frank says, you slide to a stop, but then you keep, you're falling even though there's nothing there. Like, you want more, you want something, but that's it. Yeah. Okay, so it feels like the book ends mid-sentence. And there's, um, if you guys want to look up this, there's this song by this band called Defeater um, that's at the end of an album called uh, Empty Days and Sleepless Nights. And it's basically, um, spoiler alert, this guy is tied to a, a, he's like pinned to a train track and his brother is about to just let him get run over by a train. And it's literally like a beat, like a train, like bum, 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 bum. And it gets louder and louder and louder and it keeps getting louder. And this guy is stuck on this train track giving this speech about like, um, you know, the last words are like, if this is how it's going to be, I'd rather die at the hands of my own family. And the album's over. It just cuts like mid sentence and it's like, he got, you know, run over by the train. That's what this, uh, this, the end of this book feels like. And it's just like, Oh, so intense. Do you feel like you want more? I feel like I need more. That was just like such a harsh drop off. You know what I mean? Like what the heck? Well, ladies and gentlemen, Dune, I don't have anything else to say. Evan, first time reading, thoughts? How many stars? How many stars? Ugh. Uh, I mean, I'm into it. I'm like in it. I don't know many books that I would even give five stars to. Definitely at least four. I need a week. I need a week to process what just happened before I can give an accurate star reading. Well, sounds great. Thank you everyone to have listened to have this whole thing, for joining us live, for the whole community. Join us on Discord, do the things, find us on Twitter. We're still going to be tweeting stuff and talking about stuff until the movie comes out. We might do another one talking about themes because this already goes an hour and 50 minutes. They were like double our normal time, but it was the last chapter. So there's a lot still to discuss. Keep up with us and uh, we will always stay spicy, my friends. Love you. Bye. That was great. This is great. We're great. We're so good at at everything. We're awesome. (laughs) Okay. Bye.